All right, good morning. So if you've been here over the last couple weeks, you know that we have been in a series called Conversations with Jesus, where we're looking at the places in the Gospels where Jesus uh, doesn't just teach, but he's actually having a dialogue with somebody. And this week, we're looking at a conversation that has a very specific topic. Uh, It's the topic of divorce. And I thought... Maybe some of you are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he's only been married for six weeks and he's already writing sermons about divorce. That's not not a good sign. Uh, Well, there's no need to suspect any connection there, okay? Uh, It just so happens that this is one of a handful of conversations that Jesus has, so I assure you I'd be preaching on this uh, regardless of circumstances. And it's important for me to say that because I believe that this passage is relevant for us regardless of our marital status. It has something important to say, whether we're single, married, divorced, separated, whatever the case, we we have something that we need to hear here. Now, I want to start by acknowledging something, and that is that this is a thorny passage. And what I mean by that is uh, it kind of can be likened to a rose, okay? Uh, What I mean by that is what Jesus is saying here is beautiful and it's true like a rose. But if it's not handled properly, it can cause a lot of pain. Just like when you reach for a rose, if you don't handle it properly, it's gonna, the thorns are going to bite you, right? Um, I believe that as people have tried to apply this passage over the centuries, it has caused some unnecessary pain. And I'll get into the specifics of what I mean by that later. Uh, I do want to add, though, that even if this, ha- this passage is handled properly, there is still a potential for it to cause pain because what it does is it reminds us of how high God's ideal for marriage is. And in the process of doing that, it reminds us of how far we often fall from that ideal. So I want to acknowledge that there is a potential for, for pain, even if it's handled properly, but even as this pain Uh, is created. At the same time, this passage reminds us of the grace of God, and I'll explain why that is once we get into it. So all that to say, if you're feeling uncomfortable about this topic at all, maybe it strikes just a little too uh, close to home, um, I want you to think about the analogy of the rose. It's a little difficult to handle, it can be painful, but ultimately what it's saying is beautiful. So try not to be too nervous. Okay. Uh, If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, 
except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Okay. Now, what many people here, when they read this passage, can boil down to this. Here's the Cliff Notes version. Divorce is not acceptable. There is just one exception if your spouse has had sex with someone else. Right? That's fair. Right? Most, many people boil down this passage to those cliff notes. And over the centuries, as people have tried to apply this cliff notes version, uh, understanding of this passage, it has led to some problematic applications, to say the least. And I want to talk about a, th a few of those, three of them to be exact. Here's three problematic applications. First one, if I am in an abusive marriage, I have to stay married so long as adultery has not occurred. Uh, some people, usually women, find themselves married to somebody who has turned violent. Right? Maybe they had no indication that this violence uh, was going to be there early on in the relationship, but the relationship has turned violent. And on a regular basis, they do not feel safe in their own homes. They might even fear for their lives and the lives of their children. And some of these, these people are told by well-meaning pastors who are trying to apply this passage that they have to stay in these marriages in order to honor God. Uh, so a woman's husband may have threatened her life. She may have, they, he may have punched her in the head repeatedly. Uh, he may have even pointed a gun in her direction and threatened her. But if he hasn't had sex with another woman, she's got to stay in the relationship. And, and some well-meaning pastors will say she doesn't actually have grounds uh, to divorce him, and she certainly doesn't have grounds to remarry someone else who might actually love her well. And this is, this is not a minor issue, okay? This is a very significant issue because according to research, as many as 25% of women in the United States are currently experiencing abuse from either a current intimate partner or former intimate partner. 25%. One in four. That's, that's shocking. And that statistic, actually, it can be found in quite a few places. But the place where I first read it was in a book called Violence in Families, What Every Christian Needs to Know, uh, by a guy named Al Miles. And the book also said that domestic violence is the most common source of physical injury for women in the United States. So if, if a woman goes to the emergency room, it is most likely that the reason is because of domestic abuse. In fact, uh, more women go to the emergency room due to domestic abuse than for traffic accidents and muggings combined. That's how common it is. So whether Jesus' words here require people to stay in abusive relationships, that's not a minor question. That's a very relevant question. It's a very personal and real question for a lot of people. And some people have even been told that if they are in an abusive relationship where the spouse is unrepentant, that the most Christ-like thing they can do is take the beating. Because Christ took a beating. And I want to say unequivocally that that is terrible counsel. Terrible counsel. And it does not honor the spirit of Jesus' teaching here. 
But before I explain why, okay, I want to identify two more problematic applications of this passage. Second, if I remarried, I need to return to my first spouse in order to be okay with God. What happens sometimes is people get married, the marriage doesn't go well, could be entirely their fault that the marriage doesn't go well. Maybe they come to faith a little later in life when they're on their second marriage, maybe even their third marriage. And then they read this passage and they say, oh my gosh, by God's standards, I'm living in adultery. I'm in sin. The only way that I can make this right is if I try to go back to my first spouse. This is what some people think. But then they think, but that doesn't feel right either because I already made a commitment to the one that I'm with right now. And so people will end up stuck in this limbo where they feel like they're living in sin and God's angry with them, but they feel like there's no right way to make things right. So that's another problematic application. And then a third problematic application is people will say, if I am divorced and my former spouse didn't cheat on me, I can never remarry and have God's blessing on my marriage. You know, some people mess up. They fail to honor God in their marriage. Uh, they fail to honor their spouse. The marriage ends. And then even after they have recognized their wrongdoing, they've confessed, sought God's forgiveness, they still feel like there's this contempt that God has for them that's sort of hovering over them. And they feel like they would never be able to marry again and have God's blessing, God's approval on the marriage. And you might say, in a sense, that they end up kind of punishing themselves uh, for years and maybe the rest of their lives. And <laughs> awkwardly, some spouses or former spouses end up praying that their former spouse will have sex with somebody, somebody else. Because then they'll feel like, well, they committed adultery first, so then I wouldn't be committing adultery if I remarried. And you know if you're praying for somebody to sin, that something's wrong, okay? That's, that, that you're not thinking correctly, right? So this is another problematic application. And this is by no means a complete list of all the problematic applications that can come from this passage, but it's a few to show us just how thorny this passage can be, Right? To put it simply, taken a certain way, this passage can be used to argue that people have to put up with unrepentant abuse from a spouse, that, they're, um, that if they've remarried, God is angry with them, and that if they messed up a marriage, they will never have another chance at a marriage. Right? Now, as you can, as you can imagine, due to the way that I've set this up, I don't believe those conclusions should be our takeaway from this passage. Uh, I think to do so would be mishandling the rose. So for the rest of this morning, I want to explain why I think that way, and I want to talk about what I think Jesus is really teaching us through this dialogue. Now, in order to really understand the heart of what Jesus is saying here, it helps to know a few things. So notice that the Pharisees question. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Not, is it lawful for a man to ever divorce his wife? Right? It's not that kind of question. It's, is it lawful for a, man, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So what they're essentially asking is this. Does a man 
And let's be clear here, not a woman, but a man, because men were the ones that had the right to really initiate divorces in that time. Does a man have a right to divorce his wife whenever he feels like it? That's the question. Now you might think, what a ridiculous question. What good moral teacher is gonna hear that question and then go, oh yes, yes, it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife whenever he feels like it. But the fact is, in that time, there was a whole school of people who thought exactly that. Uh, in those days, there were two major schools of rabbinic thought on marriage. So one was what was known as the school of Shammai, the, the rabbi Shammai, and the other was the school of Hillel. And these rabbinic schools would argue over how to interpret certain passages in scripture. And specifically, they disagreed over how to interpret a passage in the book of Deut Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy contains the Mosaic law, the laws for Israel, and in Deuteronomy there's a passage that says that a man, if he divorces his wife, should write a certificate of divorce. You'll notice there was a point in the passage where the Pharisees or the disciples referred to that, right? And these two groups disagreed over how to interpret that passage because the passage said if a man finds something indecent about his wife, he, should write her a, he can write her a certificate of divorce. And so the debate was over what does indecent mean? Now, the school of Shammai said it is unlawful for a husband to divorce his wife unless she commits adultery. That's the indecent act. But the school of Hillel looked at that same passage, and they said, well, indecent isn't specified, so it could mean a lot of things, including, and I'm not exaggerating here, they literally said, if your wife has dinner too late, that could be regarded as indecent, and that could be grounds for divorce. If your wife is declining in physical attractiveness, well, that could be regarded as indecent and grounds for divorce. Basically, according to the school of Hillel, anything that a husband regarded as indecent was grounds for divorce. So that's why the Pharisees ask this strange question, because what their question really is, is, is the school of Hillel correct? And Jesus' answer is, is what? No, right? Jesus is much more on the side of the school of Shammai. No, Hillel has got it wrong. And the way that Jesus answers is by quoting one of the earliest chapters in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Is haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So what Jesus reminds them of there is that God has created marriage to be a permanent union. Right? He's reminding them that this is a union where two people become one. You don't separate something that is one. It's not intended to be separated. The word there that gets translated as be united, that is an intense word. If you look up that word in a Hebrew to English dictionary, it says to glue upon to glue to, to join oneself to closely, cleave to, stick to. See, what Jesus is saying here is that marriage is supposed to be like crazy glue. It's a, it's a holy, God-ordained, covenant relationship 
It's supposed to be a one-flesh relationship, spiritually and physically. It's not something a man should think he has a, has a right to uh, leave just because there's something about his wife that displeases him. Because she's not a good cook, or her hair's turning gray, or she can't bear children, or even if she's difficult to live with. Because marriage isn't like that. Marriage is supposed to be crazy glue. And that's why divorce is one of the most stressful experiences that a human being can go through. Uh, Experts say that divorce is the most stressful life event second only to the death of a spouse or the death of a child. And that's because you can't rip off something that's been crazy glued to you without it causing pain, right? That's the nature of of marriage. It's meant to be permanent. God designed it that way. And when it's not, if the relationship is ripped apart, it's really, really painful. And so Jesus' words here, what they are, is a rebuke of the cavalier attitude that sees divorce as something that, you know, can just be had on a whim. It's a rejection of this, these men's attitude that, divor- that marriage is something that they can just enter into and leave whenever they see fit. And to really help these men realize just how serious of a commitment marriage is, he says that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So don't you dare think it is lawful to divorce your wife for any and every reason. That's ridiculous. That is a mockery of God's design. And so if any of us find us drifting toward the school of Hillel's view of marriage, which, by the way, we as a culture have drifted towards the school of Hillel's uh, attitude towards marriage, these words that Jesus gives here should be a powerful corrective. Right? There's a lot of marriages that end today simply because one or both spouses say, I just don't feel that happy and fulfilled. Well, that, that is not grounds for ending a marriage. It's not. You know, happiness and fulfillment, they're great feelings. But they wax and wane even in healthy marriages. And we have to remember that as followers of Christ, our purpose in life is not to chase after feelings of happiness and euphoria, right? Our purpose in life is to serve God and build his kingdom. And one of the ways that we build God's kingdom, one of the ways that we make earth more like heaven, is by honoring our commitments. Right? It's by being faithful to our promises. It's by embodying Christ-like love. It's by choosing to love the one that we promise to love, even when it's hard, even when it's not novel, even when it doesn't feel thrilling. And when we do that, we're fulfilling God's purpose. And that brings meaning and joy to our lives. And here's some good news. Uh, Research indicates that even if we are in a marriage that feels unhappy, if we stick it out, usually feelings of happiness follow. Uh, In uh, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of of Marriage, he cites some longitudinal studies, uh, you know, studies that have been done over time, collecting data on people where they find that two-thirds of unhappy marriages report becoming happy within five years if the couple stays married. 
So even though our own personal feelings of happiness and fulfillment are not supposed to be our goal, studies indicate that when we're faithful to our marriage commitments, happiness usually follows. And I think that's in keeping with a principle that Jesus taught. You might remember uh, in, in Matthew 6.33, he says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. Basically, you seek God's will first, you seek his kingdom, and happiness is often a byproduct of that. But if you start with the happiness, you usually don't get even that. And you don't get God's will either. So if we want to experience real happiness, real joy, a real sense of purpose, it starts by seeking God's will first. And that means sticking to our commitments, being faithful, and it means learning how to really truly love. And it might even mean sticking with our commitment even if our spouse has broken theirs. You know, sometimes we see that Jesus clearly said that unfaithfulness is a ground for divorce. And we take that almost as a command that if a spouse is unfaithful, we have to divorce them. But it's not a command. The reality is there are beautiful stories of reconciliation in marriage, even after adultery. And although it is a legitimate grounds for divorce, it is not a command that we must be divorced. Through the Holy Spirit's help, it is possible, if both spouses are willing, in many cases, for reconciliation to occur. Because marriage is crazy glue. It's supposed to be crazy glue. All right, so what about those those three problematic applications. Why would those not be reasonable applications from this passage? Let's talk about that. Remember the first one. If I'm in an abusive marriage, I have to stay married so long as adultery has not occurred. One of the things we need to realize is that Jesus' teaching here is not meant to address any and every situation. It's not. What Jesus is doing here is correcting the belief these women have, uh, these men have, that women can be divorced uh, on a whim. And he's speaking powerfully against that belief. But he is not giving a comprehensive teaching on every possible situation that can arise. Now you might say, well, it sounds pretty absolute what he's saying here, Ryan. I don't know about that. Okay, one of the reasons we know this is because of what scripture says elsewhere. I'm going to offer us some evidence of this, 1 Corinthians 7. Maybe you're familiar with this. Uh, It's a passage where the Apostle Paul talks about marriage. And he was addressing an issue in the church at the time, which is that many of the people who had come to faith, their spouses had not. And so they were wondering, wait, I'm a believer, my spouse is not. Does that mean that we should get divorced? And Paul's answer to them was, no. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to continue living with you and stay with you, then yes, you should stay married to them. You should not leave them. But here's what he says. He says, if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. In other words, if your unbelieving spouse takes off, leaves you, you are not bound, meaning You can marry someone else. You are not married to them anymore. Now, it doesn't say anything about your unbelieving spouse who left you. They have to have committed adultery. 
in order for you not to be bound, right? It doesn't say that. It just says, if they desert you, then you are not bound. Now, in the dialogue that we've been looking at with Jesus, does he add an exception for desertion? Does he say anything about that? Does he address that issue? No, he doesn't. So we either have to assume that Jesus and Paul are in disagreement here, or we have to assume that Jesus' teaching is not meant to be comprehensive about any and every situation. What Jesus is doing here is he is teaching a general principle. Marriage is a permanent covenant. It's meant to be lifelong, and it's not lawful to end it unless somebody's committed adultery. That is, generally speaking, it is true. And generally speaking, it is especially true for the audience that Jesus is speaking to, right? He's speaking to men, men of influence and power, men who have the power to divorce their wives in a way that wives do not have the power to divorce men. You know, if, 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 a, if a battered woman had come and asked Jesus this question, you know, Jesus, I fear for my life. My husband beats me every day. Do I have grounds for divorce? He might have dealt with that question differently than he deals with this one. Not because his answer to the Pharisees is wrong, but because his answer to the Pharisees requires a different kind of emphasis. You see, when we study Jesus' words, when we study anyone's words, if we really want to understand them, it's important to, to try to discern the intent in the context of those words, not just the literal meaning of them. It's very important. You know, when Jesus said this, the intent of his words was not to keep battered women in abusive relationships, right? The intent of his words was to keep self-righteous men from justifying themselves in divorcing their, women, their, their wives on a whim. I'll say that again because I, I butchered it a little bit and I think it's important. Jesus' intent wasn't to keep battered women in abusive marriages, but to keep self-righteous men from feeling justified in divorcing their wives on a whim. That's the intent here. That's the purpose. And when we understand that intent, it affects how we apply the passage in real life. So if you are a woman or if you're a man, who's in a marriage that has a, had a consistent pattern of abuse, if you never feel safe at home, if you don't feel like your kids are safe, and if you've, you've tried to challenge your spouse to change and nothing's happening, you know, I, I believe that your spouse is being unfaithful to you. And they're being unfaithful in a way that at least warrants separation, if not divorce, eventually. And if you end up leaving that relationship, it will not be you who has been unfaithful. It will be your spouse. And Jesus is not upset with you. So if you are in a situation like that, I encourage you to seek help. And if you are the perpetrating spouse, I beg you to repent. And I beg you to recognize the seriousness of this situation. You do not have a right to this relationship. And make today the day that you start to seek help and that you get real with some people and find some accountability because things have to change. All right, what about those two other problematic applications? If I remarried, I need to return to my first spouse in order to be okay with God. 
And if I am divorced and my former spouse didn't cheat on me, I can never remarry and have God's blessing on my marriage. I'm going to lump these two together because I believe both of these applications are rooted on an assumption that is false. And the false assumption is this. If we fall short of God's ideal, we don't get another chance. If we fall short of God's ideal, we don't get another chance. The assumption is God has a standard. If we fail to meet that standard, we will be punished for the rest of our lives and possibly beyond for not meeting it. But that assumption is wrong. The heart of the gospel message is the message that all of us fall short of God's ideal. In marriage and in everything, all of us fall short. And even though we fall, we fall short, God still wants to bless us. He doesn't reject us. He still wants to give us more chances to become like him. Now you might say, well, yeah, we all fall short of God's ideal. Uh, no one's perfect. But when it comes to marriage, at least, some people do meet God's ideal. Right? You might say, I, uh, I've only been married to one person, and I've been faithful to that person. I've never cheated on them. Well, that's great. Keep up the good work. But keep in mind, God's ideal for marriage is that in marriage, we would have one sexual partner for our whole lifetime. Sex is supposed to be the sign and seal of lifelong covenant relationship, right? So, if you didn't marry the first person you had sex with, you have not met God's ideal. You have, in a sense, committed adultery. Now, you might say, oh, well, actually, um, I have only had one sexual partner my whole life. Um, I married that person. We even waited to have sex until we were married. So, I've at least measured up to the ideal. Somebody might say that, right? Again, that's great. That's fantastic. Praise God. But don't get too self-righteous, okay? Because may I remind you of something Jesus says a little bit earlier in the same gospel. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh-oh. All right. So here's God's ideal for marriage. Not only do you have one sexual partner for your whole lifetime, but you only think about having one sexual partner for your whole lifetime. That's God's ideal. And so here's the thing. According to Jesus, we are all adulterers. None of us meets God's ideal. And the good news of the gospel is that in the wake of our mistakes, there is grace. He gives second chances. He gives other opportunities for blessing. Even though all of us, to some degree, are adulterers, according to Jesus. Now, I really don't want to be misunderstood here because I am not saying that we should not strive to meet God's ideal in marriage. I actually have a really deep conviction that the church needs to model God's good design for marriage and sex to the world and that the world is completely 
losing sight of how beautiful God's good design is. And it is so important for the church to model that. And I believe so much suffering in the world could be alleviated if the church modeled that faithfully. I'm really passionate about that. But whether we like it or not, adultery is not the unforgivable sin. Our God is a God who is determined to work in and through us despite our, sin our sinfulness. And actually, it might not have been obvious here, but Jesus says something here that reveals that. So you might remember the disciples say to Jesus, okay, well, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And they're referring to that passage in Deuteronomy. And they're saying, in Deuteronomy, the Mosaic Law, Holy Scripture, it says that if a man finds something indecent in, with his wife, he should write her a certificate of, of divorce. This is, this is the word of God. Why, then, would Moses say this if God's ideal for marriage is so high? And then Jesus gives this answer. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Now, what is Jesus saying there? I'll tell you what he's saying, because it's incredibly significant. What Jesus is saying is that in the past, God gave the people a rule to follow that was less than his ideal. Why? Because he knew people wouldn't always follow his ideal. God knew that the people's hearts were hard, which means that he knew that their consciences were not sensitive. He knew that even if they were given commands, they would break them. He had commanded them to be faithful in their marriages. He had, committed them, uh, he had commanded them not to commit adultery. But he knew that their hearts were hard. So he gave them another rule for them to follow that was less than their ideal. And what that rule said was that if a man divorces his wife, he must write her a certificate of divorce. Now, what's easy to miss is that the purpose of that command was actually for the benefit of the woman. Because in that culture, it was very important for women to be married, because if they weren't married, they probably didn't have a source of support and financial income. And if a woman did not have a certificate of divorce, she couldn't remarry. So this rule that is in the word of God for the nation of Israel at that time said, if a man divorces his wife, he finds something indecent about her, he needs to write her a certificate of divorce. But ultimately, it's for the woman's protection. It's not a license for men to just divorce their wives on a whim. So do you see what Jesus is reminding us of here? Okay, Jesus is reminding us that throughout history, God has worked with sinful people. Even though they fall far short of his ideal, he still works with them. He works with us wherever we're at. You know, one way to think of it is, think of every human being as being on a continuum. Whoops, my slide got messed up here. But uh, where A is utter and total depravity, just a person who is just so far gone, like completely evil. And then think of Z as perfection. And what I want us to realize is that God works with us wherever we are on that continuum to bring us closer to Z. You know, if we're at C, he's working to bring us to D. If we're at O, he's working to bring us to P. Yeah. 
<laughs> and when it came to the issue of marriage, the Israelites were probably way closer to A than they were to Z. You know, they were still doing polygamy and stuff like that. But God still worked with them, and he still worked to bring them closer to Z, to perfection. And that is the same God who works with us today. He's a God who has an incredibly high ideal for us that we should aspire to. But he is also a God who has so much grace for us when we fall short of that ideal. He works with us. You know, he doesn't hold us in contempt forever for our past mistakes, whether it's related to marriage or anything else. Thank the Lord. He doesn't do that. You know, if we failed in our first marriage and now we're remarried, our, pre our present marriage does not need to be seen as an abomination to him. The best thing that we can do now is love our current spouse in the way that we should have loved our first. That's the best way that we can serve God in the present. If we confessed the sins of our past to the Lord and we've laid them at the cross, they do not need to keep us in condemnation. We don't need to live in fear and in guilt. God works with us. He knows that our hearts have been hard, and yet he works with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words from Jesus, these challenging words that inspire us if we are drifting towards viewing marriage in a frivolous way to realize how serious it is how important it is, that it's supposed to be like crazy glue. God, I pray that if we are married, we would be committed, Lord, that we would see marriage the way you see it, as a holy covenant of faithful, lifelong love. But at the same time, Lord, I pray that if we have fallen short of your ideal, and we all have to some extent, that we would celebrate the fact that you are a graceful God who has paid for our sins and that you want us to make the best of today, whatever our situation is. Lord, may we choose to be faithful and honor our commitments in the strength of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.